Nobody wanted partition. Nobody thought it would last. I mean, Patel famously said it was, he said the Muslims can have their rural slum for three years and then they'll all be back as part of India. And people genuinely you know, thought that it was a, a temporary measure, thought it was a, almost a sort of more of a federated measure um, than how it's turned out. So it is a, it, it's a tragedy, 47. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. Today on the pod, we are learning all about the partition of India, which on Monday the 15th of August is the 75th anniversary. Now the partition, which became effective on this date in 1947, created the state of Pakistan and made India independent. That would seem to be a cause for celebration, and it is. But the partition itself was a terrible disaster, resulting in around 1 million deaths and 15 million refugees. Barney White Spunner is the author of an immensely readable account of the 12 months in 47 that recounts the personalities involved, the different religious communities and the end result. The independence of India was, by the end of the Second World War, a foregone conclusion. But what was unresolved was what to do with a large Muslim population led by Jinnah, the leader of the Muslim League. So we'll learn about that. And I really do recommend Barney's book, which I've just read. As we mentioned in the chat, similar to another partition, Ireland, we don't much learn about this kind of thing in school. And when one thinks that India, which is the second most populous country in the world, was part of the dying British Empire in 1947, it's kind of ridiculous. Added to that, the fact that both India and Pakistan are nuclear powers and relations between the two are as bad now as ever, we should all look into the history a little further. At least that's what I think. If you're listening from India or Pakistan, I'd love to hear from you. Or for that matter, from anywhere. You can get hold of me on the Twitter, at OllieWCQ, or email history at aspectsofhistory.com. You might want to pick me up on my top 10 historical films from last week's episode. I'm all ears. Anyway, I'll hand you over to me and Barney talking about partition. Barney White Spunner, welcome to the podcast. It's fantastic to have you on. And we are here to talk about your book, Partition, and really the the event of uh, independence of India, the creation of Pakistan, and, and therefore partition um, in 1947. So it's the 75th anniversary. And so I wanted to start really, um, I think for a number of our listeners, we do have some listeners in India, um, not a vast amount, hoping that this will change that. But um, we, I think uh, many listeners are probably not as familiar um, with partition the independence of india and and the background behind it in particular so i wondered if we could kick off with that because um we probably should be more aware than than we are that's a very fair point and one of my biggest regrets is that we don't teach uh enough about indian history given what a huge part it is of british history in our schools and it always slightly bemuses me that my children come back experts on the american civil rights movement important as it is but surely as important, if not even more important to British people, is what happened in India and the creation of Pakistan. 
So, yeah, um, by way of background, let's just go back to 47, where you have India, the second largest country in the world by population, 400 million people, um, 300 million of them live under British rule in 11 provinces. Um, but uh, the, the, the remaining 100 million live in under hereditary rulers, under the Maharajas, as they're always known, who control um, also a third of a territory. So two thirds of a territory and three quarters of the population um, under British rule, a third and 100 million under, 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 Mahara, under the Maharajas. Three quarters of the population Hindu with a sizable Sikh minority, um, a quarter Muslim. And the issue by 1947 is not so much should India become independent. Um, that has finally been been accepted and uh, confirmed when the Attlee government came into power in, 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 in London in, in 1945. The issue by 1947 was not uh, independence so much as how to satisfy both Hindu and Muslim demands. So instead of it being as been originally envisaged in the 1920s, a sort of smooth transition to what then would have been a Congress government. During the 1930s, uh, there had been a sizable uh, and very important uh, movement to ensure that the, that Muslim minority, that 100 million um, Muslim population, was given proper rights, um, proper representation in the new India. Now, um, it had also become interpreted by 1947 as a separate entity, Pakistan, as it came to be known. But the you know, Pakistan was never actually until the very last minute uh, necessarily a geographical expression. It was the idea of Pakistan was a way of ensuring Muslims were properly represented in the new India. And um, Jinnah, the founding father of Pakistan, right up until the very last moment, would have preferred to see a federated structure in India, which saw uh, Islamic interests protected and represented through the regional assemblies, through the areas where there were Muslim majorities, Bengal, um, Punjab. Uh, and the idea of actually partitioning the country and having a separate country for Pakistan was really, really a very novel one. So what happens during 1947, uh, during the, the early months, as Mountbatten arrives as Viceroy, uh, as the Labour government in, in England wrestled with all the other huge problems going on in the world, particularly Palestine, there is a sort of crystallisation of this issue. Uh, and it, it results only really quite quite late on, really as late as, as, as the 3rd of June itself, when the announcement is made in that Pakistan will actually be a separate country. And could you talk a little bit about the personalities involved? You've mentioned Jinnah there, um, yeah. of the, the head of the Muslim League. But could you um, mention some of the some of the people involved at Congress and obviously the British administration as well? So let's let's talk. So talking then about the people involved in this, let's um, start with the majority. Let's start with Congress. Congress is led by uh, by Nehru, uh, and if you like, its its major sort of mover is Patel. So whereas Nero is the voice of Congress, he's the public face of Congress, the man who actually sort of calls for shots with him is Patel. And Gandhi is still a huge influence. Gandhi is less involved in the day-to-day -day running of Congress at this stage, but he is still the, the influence. He's still the, the voice in the wings. And he still has that, to many Indians, he is the representation of Congress. But what Congress represent, they say, and Jinnah and the Muslim League would disagree with this, they say they represent all Indians. 
they don't see themselves as necessarily a, a Hindu Sikh party, which is how the Muslims see them. Uh, let's not forget that Nehru had spent a lot of his a lot of his life had, had spent a considerable amount of time in Russia. He saw India very much more in economic um, terms, in social terms, and in religious terms. He was London-educated, lawyer, led led a very sophisticated life. And although Gandhi had educated him to a certain extent in the reality of poor rural India, he he was he saw himself more as the next generation of Indian politicians, and he saw India developing as this into a a, a country where religion would would be um, would be less important. Um, Patel was um, less uh, romantic, if you like, and had a much more um, grounded view. Um, but Congress genuinely thought there was no need for a separate Muslim entity. It wasn't just a sort of Hindu versus Muslim. They genuinely thought, Nehru genuinely thought. I mean, Nehru, for all his criticisms, he's very touchy, he's a great man. You know, Nehru saw an India in those sort of future socialist terms. Um, th so that is the Congress leadership, rather those three, Nehru, Patel and Gandhi. Turning to the League, the League rarely was Jinnah. And in the way that Gandhi came to represent, Congress came to represent Indian independence for many people worldwide. I mean, Gandhi is a hugely respected international figure by 47. So Jinnah comes to represent um, the Islamic identity that you know, there's 100 million Muslims. Uh, he had his main lieutenant, Likad Ali, who becomes eventually the first prime minister of Pakistan, has been very sadly assassinated. But it's Rally Jinnah who is the, the face of the league. Um, and what, of course, is interesting about Gandhi, um, Nehru and Jinnah is they're all London educated lawyers, all three of them. So it was a degree of, of, of understanding. Um, also with Jinnah, it's just interesting because Jinnah, of course, was originally part of Congress in the 1920s. There was at one point it looked as if Jinnah might emerge as the leader of Congress uh, until he diverged quite radically in the early 1920s, probably pushed by Gandhi. Um, who wanted to retain um, the, the leadership, to retain the inspiration with him and, and his clique. Um, but it wasn't always going to be this uh, um, antipathy um, between them. And then on the British side, um, and people also forget, of course, the, the British were a big element in this. Uh, you'd had, as the wartime viceroy in India, first of all, um, a man called Linlithgow, who uh, rarely did not cover him himself in glory in trying to deal with the Bengal famine. And let's remind ourselves, the Bengal famine killed uh, six times as many British subjects as the whole of the Second World War combined. So three million people die of starvation in Bengal, um, whereas half a million is the total number of other casualties in the Second World War. It's not a very edifying story. Uh, Wavell then takes over as Viceroy, um, Field Marshal Wavell, and he is the viceroy who deals with the Bengal famine, but he's quite unable to bring about an understanding um, or to find any solution between the standoff between Congress and the Muslim League. Um, and he's replaced then in, um, in March 1947 by Mountbatten. Um, and Mountbatten is always has sort of portrayed himself very much as the, um, the sort of all-powerful viceroy. Actually, he wasn't what Mountbatten really was. He was only there for a few months before independence. Um, he was really a, a sort of ringmaster, but quite a good ringmaster. But the real power really on the British side really lay between Delhi, between Nehru, Stafford Cripps, who was um, president of the Board of Trade, but in the cabinet, and as Attlee was consumed with huge domestic issues 
and Palestine. And Palestine, of course, demanded it demanded huge attention because of the American angle and the, it was getting all the international attention. It is actually Cripps um, uh, through a man called Krishna Menon, who was Nehru's representative in London, back to Nehru, uh, who really almost was the ones who really make the running. And what Mountbatten is doing is sort of actually quite tactfully and, and, and rather successfully sort of riding on the top of it. But he's not really a policymaker. The policy is very clearly um, now by this stage um, with Congress. And there is huge sympathy between Congress and the Labour government. I mean, they, um, they, 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 they uh, actually, I think, sees in the area a sort of fellow uh, struggler, if you like. Um, and, and so that, that that link is very strong. One other thing just on the, the sort of setup in 47, yeah, we have to remember that by 47, the Raj, the British system in India is, is dead. It's been finished, arguably, quite a lot of quite a lot of time before that. So people's idea that actually it's still, you know, it's, it's mighty empire, um, that is, 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 is com completely false. Um, the, the Indian civil service have been being um, reduced for some time, uh, rather, you know, um, since the war. Um, uh, because people hadn't you know, saw no future in getting into it, uh, and it had then lost an awful lot of people to um, to the war. Um, it, I mean, give you an example: by January '47, Bombay um, had lost Mumbai. Uh, then I'll use the 1947 language: so Bombay had lost 70% of its Indian civil service officers and 90% of its police. So Sir John Colville, who was actually a great man, was the governor of Bombay. By January 47, he had 22 Indian civil service officers to run a population of 30 million. Um, the police was ineffective. The only thing that was rarely still effective by 47 was the army. Um, and there were, in effect, um, three different armies in India. There was the British Indian Army, um, which had come so successfully through the war. Uh, there was then the British Army, i.e. British troops stationed in India, originally there to um, police India after the, in, the Indian mutiny or the First War of Independence, as Indians prefer to call it, in 57. Um, but in 1947, rarely there because nobody got around doing any, anything else with them after the Burma campaign. And then you have the state armies, the Maharaja's army. So you've got this huge armed force, all of which answers to, to Orkinek, who is the commander in chief. Um, and they are really the only force that's capable of doing anything, really, by, by 47. So when you this awful spiral of violence starts, which it does in August 46 with great Calcutta killings, uh, and then gets worse and worse, really, as we come into 47. Uh, there is there's a void, there's a vacuum in India. There's, and Congress are looking at this great country and saying, the Brits aren't running this properly. We've got to get rid of them. We've got to get on and govern. Um, we can't do so because we can't reach an accommodation with Jinnah. And the Brits won't go until they reach accommodation with Jinnah. So what happens? Well, yeah, th this is this is extraordinary to me. Is that that whilst reading the book is is the pace at, at, um, that that the whole process runs at? Obviously, I guess fueled by by the killings. But how um, how much was it rushed by the British Congress or the Muslim League? Was it all three sort of keen keen for this uh, keen for independence that to happen? I mean, certainly not the League. Um, the Brits were keen to get out because there was so much else for them to, to get on with, but they couldn't get out without solution. Now, it's rarely been driven by Congress. Um, 
you think about Congress, you know, they are rarely um, getting quite old by this stage. Um, the, um, I mean, the Brits in many ways, they were still like a bad dream. Gandhi is 78, Patel is 72, um, even Nehru is AK-58, but he'd spent his whole life working with something that he knew was inevitable, never actually seemed to happen. He lost his wife, he spent a long time in jail. Now, the impetus um, rarely comes from, from London, from actually making the announcement originally that the Brits would leave in 48, um, and that is then brought forward. Um, and and from Congress, but rarely from Congress. What I think finally um, gets Nehru to accept that partition has to happen, and partition he sees and Gandhi sees as the price of getting independence and of getting on with the future. They don't think it'll last. They think it's a temporary measure, and they think it's a price worth paying. Although they all hate it, nobody wants partition. Least of all Jinnah. Um, but it's a price worth paying to get rid of the Brits, to get on with governing before this great country starts falling to bits. What finally persuades Nehru to go for it is um, the decision to go for a plebiscite in the northwest frontier province. Uh, let me just unpack that. So the northwest frontier province, bizarrely, you might think, for a, 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 a province which had a very large Muslim majority, had actually elected a Congress government in the regional assemblies regional assembly elections. Um, Nehru therefore thought that that meant that um, it was any sort of partition. Um, Northwest Frontier Province would have to come to India, um, which would have made the whole concept of Pakistan unviable. Um, the governor of Northwest Frontier Province, a man called Olaf Karoe, um, actually argued strongly to Mountbatten, and this is one of the few times Mountbatten actually stands up to Nehru, that actually that had been a, a sort of one-off and that actually maybe had taken the regional assembly elections very seriously. Congress had lobbied and campaigned very hard and people associated them with independence rather than with a Hindu-Sikh party. Um, so he said, no, you've got to have a plebiscite um, in the Northwest Frontier Province if there's going to be any idea of partition. Um, and once that had been accepted and that was forced on Nero, Nero actually went up there and got mobbed and attacked by Bataan tribesmen, which thoroughly alarmed him. Um, he came back to Delhi at the end of April, thinking, actually, Northwest Frontier Province probably will go to Pakistan if we have partition. Um, I think partition is the only way forward. Mountbatten, during May, advances a plan, um, which is known as Plan Balkan, which is, if you like, a sort of more development of what Jinnah wanted. It's a sort of federal plan, um, which sees uh, different provinces, different states, uh, with under Islamic, under Muslim League control, as others under under Congress control. My um, Batten thinks this is is wonderful. Actually, um, Nehru, who when it's revealed to him, throws a complete wobbly and says this is totally unacceptable. India is ungovernable like this. And Nehru realised that the only way that the Brits would run India is because they maintained this very strong control of central power. They controlled monopoly of force, they controlled communications, the railways, they controlled finance, and obviously foreign policy. And he knew, and he was dead right, he just knew that India couldn't work like this. So um, having thrown out Plan Balkan and told my it was totally unacceptable, having seen what happened in the northwest frontier province when he went up there, by the middle of May, he is determined on partition. And it's rarely then him and Gandhi very reluctantly, who pushed for it, they brief Cripps, who, 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 who breathes Attlee, um, the cabinet in London are bemused because Mike Batten's given them one plan, Balkan, which then, uh, uh, as soon as they've been given it, then they're told it's untenable. 
And the plan that is formed at the end of May is this plan to partition um, both the Punjab and Bengal, so that Pakistan will have two elements. It will have the Islamic majority elements of the Punjab, which will include the Sindh and Northwest Frontier Province, and it will have East Bengal. Um, and, and Bengal, of course, has been partitioned before under, under Curzon in 1905, so that was nothing new there. Um, and that, that this would be announced, it would be the only way, really, that the, to, to get the Brits to go. Um, and that was the plan then that was announced by Mike Batten with Nero and Jinnah all together. They all made joint radio statements on the 3rd of June. Um, Jinnah then, interestingly, f- f- uh, reigns back against it. He sort of fights back against it and says, this is all going too quickly. I don't really want this. Um, you know, even if you are going to do this, you can't do it for some time. You've got to leave considerable British support um, uh, to, to, for Pakistan behind for some time. He knew the Brits didn't want that. Um, you have to leave. You have to split the army, which he demanded, which again he knew the Brits wouldn't want, and of course the Brits hated. But it was inevitable; it was always going to happen. Um, whereas actually, so he's trying to slow it down, but Congress are actually trying to speed it up. Uh, and the on the third of June, there's a wonderful letter to Mike Batten, written by Gandhi, on the in the who waited on one of those wooden benches in a third-class Indian railway carriage and pencil, stubby pencil on the back of envelopes, which is how Gandhi communicated, saying, right, you've decided on position, now go, just go, just go, go by the end of June. Um, and the pressure to bring the date forward is entirely with Congress. There was a sort of myth around that it was Mike Batten's decision. Um, he took the decision to go on the 15th of August, um, because that happened to be the anniversary of VJ Day. It's complete rubbish. It was, and again, and it's very well documented in, um, in, 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 in the records, it's Congress pushing and pushing. The Brits saying, yeah, OK, but we've got to get an act through Parliament. So we've got to get an act, the independence of India, through the British Parliament, because you have to have a legal set up. And the, the Congress, they're all lawyers, remember, accepted that. Um, and as soon as you can actually do that is by the end of July. Parliament always finished for Goodwood which it duly did, but it was passed. And then really the first logical time you can do something about it, having got the act passed, is about two weeks after that, which is why the date was decided. But it's Nehru, it's Gandhi, it's Congress pushing, just desperate to you know, get on, because India's falling to bits about their years. When India really is, you know, there's rioting, with people being murdered, there's arson, there's looting going on the, the whole time. The country is, 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 is falling to pieces. So that's where the that's where the rush comes from. Well, you've mentioned the army and and with the breakdown in in civil order, the army really doesn't get involved, does it? I mean, it'd be interesting to talk about the army a little bit more because I I, I was reading that they had trained for civil disorder the year before, and so this could have been something that the army had been uh, could go into to to resolve is is that correct it's absolutely correct and i think it's one of the great um sadnesses of 1947 um and reading your book sorry to interrupt yeah. but reading your book it seems as though orkinlek is the main man responsible well i would say he's the main man responsible i think orkinlek is one of these people who uh, was the sort of indian army had been his life and he was confronted at the end of his career with splitting and we like saying goodbye to this great organization. And let's not forget this was, still is, a fantastic organization. This is the army that had really turned defeat into victory, to use Slim's words, in, in Burma. Um, it's a fantastic organization. Um, but there is a, a, an element in the way that it's handled in 47, which um, yeah, actually puts the army um, as a sort of on a pedestal 
uh, as being an end in itself. And armies are not there to be ends in themselves. Armies are there to do the the bidding and the will of of, of a government that pay for them and 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 and, um, and set them up. Um, and what happens in forty seven is the army becomes sort of consumed with dividing itself and into how regiments be split up, who will go where, which regiment will go, will have which equipment, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Actually, that in itself isn't a big issue because the after the Second World War, the army had been re-recruited on what the Indians called class lines. And that meant um, it was they'd recruited um, squadrons, companies, according to people's ethnicity and religion. So you would have a, a Muslim or a um, or a Sikh or a, a, a Hindu squadron or company. So actually, the division itself isn't that difficult. It was already divided up. There was a thing called the Wilcox Committee that actually decided to do that. Interestingly, Enoch Powell was a member of that committee, who was a brigadier at the time. Um, but what the, if you think about the Indian Army, yes, it had fought fantastically in Burma, but actually it had always been designed otherwise for internal security. That's what it was there for. So before the, the First and Second World War, um, that, that's all it had done. And actually, arguably, um, when um, it was um, you know, used in the First World War, I, one could argue actually very badly, um, well, bad, bad, badly deployed, badly, badly led. I mean, no reflection on the Indian Army, but you know, actually it was not designed to fight in trenches in France, and hence it's pulled out and used in Mesopotamia. But the... Um, you know, it, it actually is a hugely efficient and effective organization. It's massively powerful. It has its own hospitals, factories, logistics set up. It's very mobile. Um, and the argument that is advanced that actually you shouldn't use it for something like internal policing in the Punjab or Bengal because um, the soldiers will be distracted um, by their own um, uh, the, the, their own background by their own to help their own co-religionists or whatever but <laughs> that's actually a terribly narrow argument because you you've got an awful lot of regiments an awful lot of parts of the Indian army who, who, who don't come any, anywhere near the Punjab or Bengal uh, and actually what the small force they do eventually deploy to maintain order in the Punjab is based bizarrely on the fourth division which was headquartered in Lahore anyway so it was a local division so that is a, you know, a big unknown. And then you've got this other question of why aren't the British troops or, and the, or the Gurkhas used? Um, now, the Gurkhas, although they're Indian army, are never quite always seen as non-partisan. So most Gurkhas are actually Hindus, some are Buddhists. But the fact is, seen from India, they are seen as neutral, rather like the British troops. So and there's nearly 50,000 Gurkhas uh, sitting in India by the end of the war and with 60,000 British troops who are in form brigades, they are completely mobile, they're mobile units, they've got their own communications, air support, logistics. So they could have been deployed anywhere. Um, so not only do you have reluctance in Delhi from walking there, come out back to use the, the Indian army, um, but there was then an extraordinary telegram issued by the Attlee government in July, uh, which says that on no account of British troops, British British troops, i.e. the British element, to be used to protect Indian life. Um, now, that to me is an extraordinary thing, particularly from a Labour government, post-war Labour government. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know, there's so much going on, you could argue it wasn't intended as it came over, but it certainly had the effect of keeping British troops stuck in barracks. So while this terrible slaughter was going on um, in the Punjab, um, the, the British troops sitting there doing nothing, getting incredibly frustrated, the expression going doolally, 
comes from Purlali, which is one of the British depots near Bombay, where British troops are sat there, you know, doing absolutely nothing, going do lally, as we called it, um, because you know, they, they were restricted to barracks. Interestingly, in Bengal, um, a great man called Francis Tuka, who was the commander in chief of Eastern India, he just simply ignored the order and he deployed Gurkhas onto the streets of Calcutta. And actually, if you look at what's happened in the summer of 47, uh, there is remarkably little violence in Bengal, much, much less than had been feared. Uh, and of course, back in August 46, this whole process, if you like, had kicked off with the great Calcutta killings when 5,000 people have been murdered in Calcutta. But actually, in 47, Bengal remains relatively calm. And there are, has, of course, been terrible trauma in Bengal afterwards as people have relocated. And you know, I, I wouldn't argue in, any, in many ways the experience of Bengal has, just as, has been as painful as the Punjab. But it's in slower time and involved less loss of life um, uh, because Tuka did that. But in the Punjab, we have this Punjab boundary force deployed. Um, it's under a great man called Pete Reese, one of the divisional commanders from Burma, a very distinguished military record. And he's given 17,000 troops to police 17,000 villages. Well, that's one soldier per village, and he's given no air support. Um, well, uh, I was going to ask about yeah. numbers. Numbers wouldn't have been the reason why um, there was a reluctance to, to no. put the army in. No. They had, no, they had enough. Yeah, and more than that. I mean, the whole Indian, the whole... The Indian army is roughly half a million. The British and Gurg troops, 100,000. And then you've got the, the Air Force and the Navy. The Navy, okay, arguably not hugely, um, but uh, effective. But um, because of, you know, was, uh, most of this takes place way inland. But the, the Air Force certainly would have been hugely effective and useful. And, um, and of course, uh, the, the Brits had seen they'd use the Air Force to control Iraq. I mean, the Brits had a lot of experience of using Air Forces for internal control, internal disorder. And as you said at the beginning there, Oliver, I mean, what's so extraordinary about this is just the year before, um, the, the whole scenario had been exercised with a breakdown law and order in the Punjab when the army had been deployed and all the plans were there and the, you know, the post-exercise papers. They're all still in the, I went through the whole lot in the London Library and I was writing the book. It's, an, it, it, it's a very strange um, thing to have done. And of course, it does come back and haunt um, and, 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 and haunt the main protagonists afterwards. Um, Mountbatten got very defensive about it, um, Orkinlek equally. Um, but of course, the other thing, if you think about it from Congress's point of view, you know, they didn't see armies as a constructive force. They see their experience of armies had been putting down uh, you know, a demonstration. Amritsa. Exactly that. They'd seen them sort of, you know, wielding um, battens and 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 lattes and and attacking them. They didn't like the idea of Burma. I mean, didn't like the idea of the Japanese. But they, while they were languishing in jail, had seen a lot of our countrymen fighting for what they thought was a sort of occupying power in Burma. So, you know, there was no, they had no experience of using armies. Um, Jinnah had none none at all. Jinnah actually also had no experience of the Punjab. But you know, to Gandhi and Nehru, the idea of an army could be used sort of effectively to to protect life is sort of not something they considered. So the horrific violence, and, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, yeah. But and the violence really is horrific. But before we do, I just wanted to understand how much of a role did the politicians play, and I'm including the British in this, um, in 
sort of riling up Muslim Hindu Sikh populations to 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 kill each other, effect. Which is well, the, I, I think actually, it's happened. a very fair question. I think, to be honest, actually very little. Um, I think all responsible politicians are horrified by what happens in the run up to um, the Bardition. Yes, there is. Uh, a bit of rabble rising that goes on, particularly in the Punjab. Um, I have to say, sadly, particularly amongst the Sikhs. Um, but uh, generally, certainly from the more national politicians, no. I think they. I think that is. It, 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 I don't think you can accuse anybody of actually actively wanting this to happen. Um, and they are absolutely. I mean, Nero is completely horrified by it because De Niro, It just comes as a huge shock. I mean, his Nero has this slightly romanticized view of you know of, of india and the indians you know, and they're all going to work together to be part of a socialist utopia where religion doesn't matter and you know, we'll build the factories and build the houses and you know and turn ourselves into into a modern country that the brits have stopped us doing for so long um for gandhi you know who peace and the idea of sort of getting on together is is, is really his life's life's motivating force it, it's horrific um, and Jinnah, again, is just completely taken by surprise. When Jinnah actually moves from Karachi, his new capital, up to Lahore to try and see whether he, well, what he can do about it. So I, I really don't, I don't think that's a fair accusation. Um, I think what is a completely fair accusation is to say that local rabble-rousers um, wanted to sort of clear their areas. But what becomes so tragic about this, and that we'll talk now mainly about the Punjab, um, is that communities who live together for centuries um, sort of turn on each other. Uh, the Sikhs are the best organised, um, and they've got a lot of ex-army NCOs, um, so they actually you know, understand weapons and tactics. Um, and um, ditto with some of the, um, because the Indian army had been very largely recruited, over, the Indian army was over half recruited in the Punjab. Um, and ditto from um, some of the, the Muslim rabble-rousers in, 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 in the West Punjab. So local politics, yes, uh, a lot of very responsible behaviour. But nationally, no, I think just a general horror that this could happen. So you mentioned the local um, local politician involvement. So yeah. That suggests then the violence almost coordinated on a, at a local level? Local level it's coordinated, yeah, um, but it's not nationally. Um, there is no sort of evil force sitting there saying, you know, let's go and um, smash up or, 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 or murder that lot today. It, it is very local and it does, of course, tend to centre around the area between Amritsar and the hall where the border will run, the border does still run, um, uh, in, 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 in those villages, but it spreads quite widely across the Punjab. Um, now, actually, what is an interesting angle on this, which is, again, not much talked about, is that, um, of course, there's very little violence and murder in some of the princely states. So once we come south from the Punjab and you get into example, for example, into Jodhpur, Jaipur, um, there, where, which are still ruled by the hereditary rulers in 47, um, there is no violence. Uh, and those rulers come about it in a completely different way. So the, the Jobpo family actually run their own um, refugee service to move any Muslims who want to leave Jobpo and to go into Karachi. They run the state railway service protected with the Maharaja's troops. Uh, and it worked. Maharaja actually sends his, um, 
is is poor. I think he's his nephew or great nephew who's just come out of an English public school. His when he arrives back for the holidays, he's still going to run the evacuation operation on the border. But it works very effectively. It, it, it works really well because you've got really strong leadership. Uh, Jaipur, the you know, the Jaipur family, actually run an incredibly effective refugee um, organisation. So as um, Hindu refugees from from the south of Pakistan come over the border and make their way through to Jaipur, you know there was a a, a really well organised um, resettlement plan. So um, the Punjab yeah was always going to be different. The Punjab is um, is the Punjab in its in this great sort of rich part of India. People just wanting, yeah, but then a lot of local issues come in, like wanting your neighbour's land, just you know, wanting to have um, e- ethnically pure villages, as we've seen sadly in ethnic cleansing going on in so many countries since the war. Um, but there is no, there's no evil master plan. And and the numbers that uh, were killed and, and and refugees as well is extraordinary, really, isn't it? It's around about a million killed. Yeah, yeah, roughly that's the accepted figure now nobody knows exactly i mean the figures which i think are now most widely accepted are a million dead and 15 million refugees because of course the refugees keep coming and go back to what you said at the beginning part of the reason this is so important to british history and why it's so important that um british children learn about this is that an awful lot of our population today are, 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 are here because of what happened so if you ask many british south asian families I couldn't put a percentage on it, but you know, one might say sort of certainly over 30 percent, maybe even 40 percent. They would all have a story to tell about partition. And there have been several wonderful books written, um, as you'll know, um, about about the effect on families. Um, with lots of which came out, or lots, several came out in 2017 and, um, and, and, and some are just coming out now. Um, so yeah, the, the, the refugee problem goes on and on. It's not just people being uprooted from East uh, Punjab and settled in West Punjab or vice versa. It's actually what happens to those families afterwards. And when you've been you know, turfed off land your family have had for centuries, how does that family readjust to a completely new, a completely new life? And it's very difficult and often it doesn't work, which is why I think so many you know, came, came to the UK in, in the 50s and 60s. And again, this is exactly the same in Bengal now. Um, so that figure for refugees included, it's not a Punjab, it's a Bengal as well. But of the million dead, um, many in revolting and horrible circumstances, they are mostly in the Punjab and they're mostly between August and November 1947. And so if you think about it, that is a really you know, horrific, horrific number. And, and so the numbers um, that... I'm just trying to get my head around the the you know you've got you've got all these these hundreds of thousands a million people killed yeah and and so I'm just interested in how Congress and the League the Muslim League and 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 the British administration well I guess it by this stage it's no longer the uh, the administration um, yeah he's Governor Gen- Mountbatten's now Governor General as of 15th yeah. of August. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are they what what are they doing to try and limit the 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 slaughter yeah and initially quite a lot um and i think it's just important to just go back a stage because if we think about the plans um made in june 47 for partition and the idea was that although it was going to be two separate countries that they would work very closely together there would be for example a joint defense structure 
So there was going to be a joint defence council chaired by Orkinek, which was going to bring the armies of India and Pakistan together for a common purpose. Uh, there was a whole raft of joint initiatives. Which, Just on that, so, Barney, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but I couldn't, I, what I can't quite get my uh, understand there is if Orkinlek is um, in effect remains head of the Indian army or, or yeah. a, a joint, you know, India-Pakistan army, yeah. he then reports into two, um, who's he reporting into? Because well, it seems it, a confusing it, 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 line it of... It does. So initially the plan had been, um, it, it's un, you're absolutely right, it's unclear. But originally, you see, Mike Batten was going to be Governor General of Pakistan and India. It's only when Jinnah decided he would be Governor General of Pakistan himself that that plan began to unravel. Um, and the point you just made is exactly the point that Nehru made. And he began to really doubt all connects impartiality. But he said, how can you be sort of supreme commander in Pakistan and India? So actually what happens is all connect really becomes supreme commander in, in India. Um, and Pakistan goes its own way, and then Orkinek actually leaves fairly soon, um, much sooner than intended. But the head of an well, Indian army would need to report into the Indian governor general, general or the... Yeah, well, I think that was the original plan, but that's when Nehru began to, began to realize that wasn't going to work. Yeah. So, and Nehru actually, it's very interesting how um, Nehru distanced the Indian army from power in a way that the Indian, um, the Indian government still does. So in Pakistan, the army become very much sort of part of a state or the state is sort of the army. Um, in India, e even now, there is a very distinct barrier. I mean, the Indians have never had a powerful chief of defense ever since because of this Orkinek issue. They've always had powerful single service chiefs. They have a chief of defense, but he's a rotational officer. I think actually, I think he's changing that. But that is an absolute direct result of how Nehru saw this Orkinek issue. So you're absolutely right to draw attention to it. It is, it is not clear. And I, there, there isn't a sort of absolute answer because it wasn't clear. Um, but to get back to your original question, so how, what do we do? Well, there is quite a frenzied effort. Um, there's several frenzied conferences in Lahore, um, but they come up with completely the wrong answers. But instead of actually strengthening Pete Reese's Punjab boundary force, um, all that happens is both sides recriminate against Reese saying his soldiers are being partisan to the other side, which is never what people are going to say. Um, and so they disbanded in early September. So the one force that could have actually done something is disbanded. There's then a very fraught arrangement where India will deploy some troops into Pakistan to escort Hindu and Sikh columns out. And Pakistan will deploy some troops into Punjab to deploy um, to, to, to escort Muslim columns out. But it's quite... Um, fragmented although it works to a certain extent it doesn't really work very well not least because these huge columns miles and miles long you've got very few troops escorting them so what happens is the gangs um, the jatas will fall on the back ends or the, the unprotected areas of the columns and of course an awful lot of the violence is on people on trains where the gangs will derail the train or stop the train then just simply go through the train and slaughter everybody on it um, which is why it is so horrific but you know, it is. It does. It causes tremendous um, angst. It's certainly not as if Nehru, Gandhi, Mountbatten, Jinnah are sitting there, sort of resting on their laurels. There's a huge amount of, you know, of hand wringing. But it, it's this inability to, um, an inexperience, I guess, to um, actually say, right, you know, we need to do this, that, or the other. We need to. I mean, martial law is never imposed, for example. 
um, at the in, in many ways, actually, the army said they didn't need martial law because it had all, all the powers that they, they needed, but it would have sent a message. Um, and uh, it, it read in after the, the last major meeting in the hall is, is early September, but by the end of September, the violence is probably at its height. So it really hasn't done anything very effective. And I, I, I don't want to draw too um, direct a, a parallel to your own experience, but and we haven't really talked about that at all. Um, but you, you've you've got a, you a long and distinguished military career and uh, had a senior role in Iraq. And, I, and I'm not for a moment comparing the two, but I'm just interested what the, the view of a, a you know, a, a senior military officer is on the ground in a, in a as effectively an occupying force in, an, in another country. Um, what that would sort of be going through the minds of, of sol British soldiers or or, um, or even other nationalities in India at the time with it, your experience in yeah, Iraq. It's interesting because actually I, start, I thought of writing this book because of a chaos we were trying to sort out in Iraq where there are quite ludicrous policies still being there in 2008 with sort of minimum number of troops not able to do anything just sort of for the sake of, of, of being there and trying to get governments, trying to get the government in London to appreciate this was a nonsense um, and um, and also trying to make them persuade the Americans that actually there are other ways of you know supporting the US coalition and actually it made me think that as a nation you know, we've never been very good at managing this military strategic interface uh, where not our politicians aren't frankly good at trusting soldiers and soldiers always seem to trust politicians. Interestingly I think the Americans actually even the French do it better than we do. I think it's one of the things we don't do well as a country. Um, and that, again, I mean, Iraq's a classic example. I mean, Iraq's a painful experience. Um, and the, um, I think you would argue that 1947 was, you know, uh, if Iraq's a painful experience, you know, 1947 is a totally catastrophic experience. So I think what's going through soldiers' minds um, is huge frustration. And we know that, sort of particularly through the British soldiers at the time. So it was a sort of fairly absurd idea that they would be British soldiers were too young to be used, which some people use as an excuse. That's rubbish. I mean, British 18, 19 year olds perfectly capable of, of, of reacting and, and, and behaving maturely. Um, and I think there is enormous frustration that um, uh, that they can't do anything. And I think with the Indian Army, I mean, there's first of all, huge sadness at the way it's been broken up. But equally, you know, enormous sadness because, of course, so many of their families in the Punjab are being influenced by it. Um, and I think huge frustration amongst the senior commanders in, as we saw from what Francis Tuka did in, in Calcutta. And Francis Tuka is one of these sort of great unsung heroes of 47. He just simply ignores his orders in Nelsonian style and, and just puts troops on the streets. And, you know, arguably Bengal owes Tuka a statue. Of course, he'll never get one because <laughs> Bengal is... <laughs> Having had communist governments, said, yeah, you didn't put up statues to ex, um, to, 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 to ex imperialist officers. But there was no doubt that actually Tuka saved, you know, in Calcutta from 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 from, from, from immolation. Um, yeah, Gandhi was there too. But actually, interestingly, great, and I'm a huge Gandhi supporter. I mean, I think Gandhi is one of the great men of the last century. But um, Gandhi actually, fun enough, was, it was quite inflammatory having Gandhi there to the Muslims. Um, and and um, but anyway, so yeah, I think it's really one of it's, it's one of frustration. Um, one of the things maybe armies are not good at is 
articulating to people in power what they can do. Actually, I think we've got a lot better at that in this country. I mean, you look at the army now, it seems to do everything from sort of <laughs> COVID to, to, to driving lawyers to, you know, being, being brought in for every conceivable opportunity because thing, it wasn't actually like that in, in India then. It was, and I, I think people saw armies as, what was their experience of the army? It was, it, it, it was controlling demonstrations, it was defeating the Japanese. Um, and I think maybe the senior leadership was not good at articulating that. You know, maybe they should have been a lot, a lot stronger with, um, uh, with, with, with people. Just going off on a slight tangent, just just because we've got a little bit of time, is is yeah. why why do you think the British are not as good as the French and the Americans? Is it because the French and the Americans have more? Uh, there's more of a military presence politically in the in the in the leadership. I think the. American generals have much more direct power than British generals do, and 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 and, and an American general now um, is much more plenipotentiary in the way that he, they sort of tend to combine the powers. Um, uh, they have huge financial power, which British generals never have. Um, the Whitehall sort of mindset is to deploy somebody and a force, and then to control it as tightly as you possibly can. The American mindset is much more towards what uh, the old sort of Klaus Witzian idea of mission command, go and do this and get on with it and do a good job. And here are the resources. Um, the Brits have never quite been able to bring themselves to do that. And I always think it's one of the great weaknesses of our Ministry of Defence is that it's, it's sort of mindset is, is, is like that. Um, so um, and with the French, um, I think it was more, more the same. The French, of course, have got a had had a much we like sort of tougher way of policing and running their their colonies than than we did. I mean, arguably, you know, one of the great things about the British Empire is actually the fact with it um, was as it was still an empire and they were still colonies, but they were. Uh, I, I think they were in many cases. I wouldn't argue this um, universally, but uh, one as, as 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 much for the benefit of, of of local people as they could be towards the end. Um, and now people take huge issue with that remark and fairly, but I mean, as a general sort of principle, I think that that applied. Whereas the French actually always maintained a much tighter, a much tighter grip. Um, so I think the French military and government have always been much more intertwined. Um, and actually, if you look at the way that the French military staffs work, so you have the French MAD, if you like, the, um, on the on, on the, the Quai d'Orsay, but you also got separate military staffs working in the Elysee and the Matignon, who brief directly into the president and the prime minister in a way that we've never done. So you have one military guy in Dining Street now who um, is sort of acts as a sort of military assistant, the prime minister. But you never have a military staff in number 10 in the same way that the French do. Um, and yeah, it's the people would argue that's absolutely correct. Um, I think it it does mean that sometimes we're not very good at articulating the military case politically. So heading heading back to um, India and Pakistan yeah. today, uh, I mean we're we're still living with the uh, I say we I mean certainly India and Pakistan are still living with with the 1947 with you know n- number of yeah. um, clashes in the Kashmir. It, mm-hmm. We're we it's we're at as as dangerous a point now as we've ever been. And two nuclear powers. Do, do you well, do you see? Yeah. What, what's the legacy today? I suppose. Well, I think. I mean, one thing we ought to just quickly talk about, Oliver, before we get on to that, because it's directly refers to it is Kashmir, of course. So go back to what we were saying that you know you had this vision, if you like, of two countries with enjoying a similar sort of relationship, possibly as um, England and Scotland, 
um, uh, that rarely dissipates during the violence of August and September. But what rarely finishes it, I mean, it, it, arguably the relationship could have survived the Punjab. What it couldn't survive was Kashmir. Um, so go back to what I said at the very beginning of this, you had the princely states um, who controlled a quarter of the population, third of the territory. They were given a choice of acceding to India or Pakistan. Now, because of rally geography and a bit ethnicity, the vast majority were always going to accede to India because they were in that block. Um, and the ones that the very few that were in Pakistan um, acceded to Pakistan. And by 1940, by August the 15th, 47, due to a lot of strong arming by Mountbatten, by Patel, um, then yeah, and by um, VP Menon, the great VP Menon, most, all except three, had agreed to where they were going and had signed the instrument accession. Of course, you've got to remember that these states had independent treaties with Britain. They weren't part of British India. They were uh, sovereign nations treating with the with the British government. Um, the three that hadn't were Unigad, um, uh, which eventually the Indians moved into, and the, um, the, the 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 Maharaja fled to Pakistan together with his hereditary prime minister, the Bhutto clan, of whom we heard a lot more in Pakistan. Um, Hyderabad, of which the Indians would eventually sort of move into, um, but then Kashmir. So. Maharaj of Kashmir is a Hindu. Um, his family had actually bought Kashmir from the Brits after the Sikh wars. It had originally been part of the Punjab. Um, so they're not a well-established family. They're not like, you can't compare them to the Jaipurs of Jodhpurs, these great princely families who were sort of of the people who'd grown up, you know, actually as a sort of one head of a huge extended family. The, this man is, is a, seen as a sort of um, a, a, an interloper. Uh, and he rules in all, a, a state which is vastly, um, a, a vast majority, a, a Muslim. Um, so although he as a ruler would probably you know, wanted to go to India, well, he didn't want to go to India, he knows that actually the state wants to go to Pakistan because it's Muslim. And of course, geographically, it fits. You, know, you look at the great rivers of Pakistan, they have their headwaters in, 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 in the Kashmir. I mean, everything about the geography and that of Kashmir lends it to, to go towards um, to, to Pakistan. Um, he doesn't decide, he hasn't decided, and uh, by, by by November, he still hasn't decided, and he's under strong pressure from Nehru, who is, of course, a Kashmiri, um, to accede to India. Nehru, again, with this idea that religion doesn't really matter. What matters is you know, the fact you're part of my, my new India. Um, and Jinnah, of course, saying, look, you've got a Muslim state, it's absolutely logical and natural you will come to, to Pakistan. It's what your people want. Um, what the people wanted was never strong on how he's seeing the Maharaja's agenda, by the way. Um, uh, but then in the end of October, uh, Muslim levies start to move from the northern hills of Pakistan down into Kashmir uh, and quite violent. Now, there's always been a, um, a, a sort of a migration at that time of year down to the plains and the hills. Um, this one was what I would call organized sort of gang violence and slightly like the gangs in, in, in the Punjab. People say it was organized by the Pakistan government. Personally, I don't think the Pakistan government was in any position at that stage to organize anything like that. Um, but they move into Kashmir and they start um, a fairly destructive campaign of violence. They um, take over Hindu villages. They do looting, um, quite a amount of pretty unpleasant behavior. And um, the Maharaja panics. Um, he goes to Nehru and says, help, this is sort of happening. I mean, I'm cutting a long story short here. Uh, and the Nehru persuades him. He sends men and up to see him. 
um, and some wonderful stories, as you'll have seen in the book. Um, it's sort of real, sort of almost farce. Menon gets him to sign accession to India, and Nehru then flies Indian troops up into Kashmir. They head off the um, Muslim levies uh, and establish the what's known as the line of control, the ceasefire line, whatever you want to call it, that splits Kashmir. Um, now, once that's happened, you know, the relations between the two countries are rarely not going to recover. Um, and of course, they haven't recovered today. So, to your point, you've got two nuclear armed states, you've got two countries spending a fortune on armed forces that they more, might more reasonably spend on, uh, on, on, on other development programs. Um, and the really sadly thing about Kashmir is it's, it, it, it's still, you know, 75 years on, it's causing this huge bitterness. You may not publish a map in India that shows a divided Kashmir. You can be sent to jail for five years for doing so. So how do we get a degree of sort of stability and normality back into the region while Kashmir is still unresolved? Um, so if you take that together with what happened in the Punjab, um, together with the breakdown in personal relationships, and gosh, personal relationships matter so much in politics, which people always forget. Um, you know, that rally, we like, is the legacy of 47 today. I mean, nobody wanted partition. Nobody thought it would last. I mean, Patel famously said it was, he said the Muslims can have their rural slum for three years and then they'll all be back as part of India. And people genuinely you know, thought that it was a, a temporary measure, thought it was a, almost a sort of more of a federated measure um, than how it's turned out. So it is a, it, it's a tragedy, 47. Um, I don't think the Brits handled it well. I mean, I'm not going to get into the whole sort of apologist for empire bit, you know, but some good and bad things about the British experience in India, and that's for another day. Um, but what you know, is for today, is for this programme, is for this, you know, for this year, is, I think, just concentrating on the legacy of this and the lessons learned from it. I think we did learn lessons. I think we handled some of the other colonial drawdowns we did much better as a result of it. I, obviously not all, but certainly some. I, I think what is amazing is that we have such very good relations with India and Pakistan today, largely helped by the fact that actually we have such a large British such South Asian population. But yeah, we've got to be very conscious that this was an awful, awful episode. And together with the Bengal famine, I mean, to me, it's one of a great, it's one of the disasters of the of, of, of the last century. Absolutely, and and certainly something that British children should be learning about that we don't like. You mentioned at the start, but Barney, there's a way that they can uh, remedy that by reading your fantastic book. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> Partition: The Story of Indian Independence and the Creation of Pakistan in 1947. Barney, look, this has been an absolute um, just tour de force from you. Really, so interesting hearing about this tragic event and thank you very much thanks Oliver great to talk about it the program comes out first um, channel four on uh, first part on Sunday night it's called partitioning color um, based largely on the book um, and the second part on the fourth channel four again on Sunday the 14th at 9 p.m well I'll be posting links for that uh, for our listeners thanks, thanks Barney Oliver. speak soon all best well I was spellbound through much of that Barney really knows his stuff as he should he's written a book as he mentions, Barney will be on Channel 4 in the UK, and I've put links in the show notes for you, so do watch. Now, listener, for the next couple of weeks, I'm taking a bit of a break, and I'm toying over doing another top 10 historical novels, history books, so more to come on that. If you want to get hold of me, you can email on the Twitter. If you can subscribe or write me a review, I'd be so grateful. Thank you, and good night.